Welcome to Purple Psychology Podcast. You're here with Melanie Hoskin and Dr. Nisha O'Reilly. Welcome, Dr. Nisha. Uh, This is episode 51, sexual abuse cases, uh, what you need to get right to change long-term patterns. So, Nisha, in terms of what you do, how do you navigate that whole arena of perhaps having a hunch that somebody may have been the victim of sexual abuse? The signs. Um, well, usually people will withdraw, and um, sometimes they'll stop eating, um, they'll just act out of character, maybe they won't sleep very well, sometimes they'll either withdraw a lot from you and won't be very affectionate, or sometimes they'll be extra kind of needy sort of coming into your bedroom at night time and that sort of thing and won't be happy to stay on their own. So it, it really kind of depends on the person, and um, quite often um, their school grades and that sort of thing will suffer too. Um, usually with any sort of traumatic event you kind of see that happen. Do you think most people get a hunch if a child, do you know, e- even if they can't put their finger on what, what is happening here uh, with the child's behaviour or say for example a change in pattern uh, with the child? Yes, I don't, I don't find that it ever really comes as a complete surprise mm. to anybody. I think people have got a sense that something has happened mm. and quite often they'll have a very good idea of where it's happened to or who's involved. Mm. They, they may not want to believe it, but they'll always have a hunch. And they, they may be perhaps more shocked at the perpetrator than the actual fact that, that something has happened. That, that wouldn't be as shocking to them. I think the one for parents is that they always feel like it's their fault and that they've made a huge mistake. Mm-hmm. They always f- feel um, hugely responsible for it. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when they don't deal with things, it's because actually they're kind of crippled by that, that they feel that they've got so much wrong and that it's totally their mm-hmm. fault. Um, that they, that's one of the biggest reasons they don't deal with it. In fact, they don't even get on to thinking about the person who's done it or anything else. They can't get mm-hmm. beyond their own guilt. So they have to deal with that first, really? Very much so. Um, in order to then um, navigate it with the child. Um, How do victims of sexual abuse differ in terms of learning from people who, say, haven't been sexually abused? As I said, you usually see that people's school grades suffer, I suppose. They stop caring. Maybe they're not as motivated. Sometimes it's they feel very hurt or they feel that they've been betrayed. In other experiences, they they feel like usually that it's their fault that, that, that this has happened to them, which is which is kind of messed mm. up. They, they don't always understand what has happened to them, but they think that there's something bad in them. Getting inside the child's head, um, they'll always blame themselves and think that they were responsible or that they brought it on themselves or led the person on or you know, that they they can't betray the secrets they're being asked to keep. There's a whole minefield Mm -hmm. going on in their head. And if you've got that much going on in your head, your schoolwork really doesn't seem to matter by comparison to other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, What strategy do you use to help people who have been abused? Well, basically, there's kind of four steps to it for me. Um, Mm. The first part is probably the most important, and that is that you've got to give the child a way to express what's happened to them and a a way to talk about it. Um, Talking's not always very easy. 
So sometimes, you know, playing it out with, you know, even Lego figures or drawing things out can be an easier route to getting to what's happened. Mm -hmm. And if they are talking, they generally might find it easier to talk if they're walking around the park or they're in the playground or you're driving in the car. If it's not a direct sit down, face to face discussion, usually if there's something peripheral happening, it's easier. But Mm. certainly, and sometimes it can help if you maybe read certain books to them. Um, There's there's an array of books kind of recommended. The one that I really like is the Dr. Seuss book, A Person is a Person, No Matter How Small. Um, It's Horton Hears a Who. Um, Mm. So it's that idea of people mattering, no Mm. matter what size they are. Mm. So you can kind of use um, bedtime stories as a way to kind of facilitate getting someone to talk. the, getting the person to talk is only part of it. The biggest one for me is that the parents have to not react to anything that's said, which is incredibly hard because obviously you're going to be upset. Mm. But uh, particularly with young children of three and four, they don't understand why you're upset. Mm. Um, and so that just compounds for them the guilt of having done something wrong to upset mommy and daddy or, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so on. Like it's. There's so much guilt wrapped up from everybody's point of view Yeah. Um, that not reacting to anything, you've got to learn how to process things away from the child yourself and how to compartmentalise and find your people to talk to separately, to go through this separately. Um, yeah. The next part that's really vital, and I think we get this wrong certainly a lot in Ireland over the years, um, particularly I suppose this was in the limelight last year with Spotlight, with that film. We don't believe people which um, you always have to believe the person. So if you think that there's other people involved um, who are not going to believe it, again, you have to separate them out because they have to have time to deal with it away where maybe they don't want to believe that some of their family or some of their friends or some of their sports club or some of whoever is involved. Mm. Um, So they have to go away and deal with that separate to the child. The child can't see that they don't believe it. Yeah. Um, So that has to happen very very. Just you have to compartmentalise it. So then you could have parents that are just thrown up in the air with trying to cope with this, trying to cope with their own guilt um, in terms of they may feel that they put the child in the path of a, a predator. So, so you, would rep, you, you would say that they need to go and sort their own stuff out first. How am I going to navigate this? How am I going to approach this so that what the child sees in me, I, I'm the leader in the child, so that will give the child confidence in me that I'm going to help. Yeah, so it, it's very much, it's, it's, everybody has to go through a process in this yeah, and you all yeah. have to go through it independently of yeah, each other, yeah. which is quite a hard thing to do. Yeah. And I'm not sure that people always get that right, which is probably yeah. something that's quite different from my advice mm. and when working with people. Mm. And it would be shocking. It would be a total shock to people. Even if they had kind of anticipated it or saw signs that... Yeah, well, this kind of uh, draws a line in the sand for me. Now, this is this is definitely happening. But even when they acknowledge that, it's kind of like, oh my God, what do I do now? Yeah, it's um, it, it, it is shock. It, it is. It's it's always mm. a massive shock. It's mm. the thing that you don't you don't want to believe. Mm. Um, and it's and no matter how much you you see it portrayed in films or TV or mm. books that you read, like. Um, um, I know why the caged bird sings is a, is a fantastic read from a child's point of view mm. um, on on how they actually feel at the time, mm. um, but but nothing prepares you for it as a parent. Mm. Mm. Well, it must be one of the most uh, difficult experiences 
um, obviously in a child's life, but a parent then to, na- to navigate it as well, because, I mean, you protect your children with your life. Um, you know, in terms of recovery or, you know, uh, bu- building the child uh, back up from that experience, um, is, is this a quick process or no. is, it, it does it become a journey? No, it's very much a journey. Um, I suppose in the beginning you get through the expression, you get through the fact that everybody has to believe. Mm. Then the next step for me is that you need to create a safe space, you need to create sort of a pact and a deal. So there has to be, um, if the child feels that they're going to end up having to stay at that person's house again or they're going to have to see mm. that that person again, that they they know how to contact you to stop that happening and they know who to contact if they can't contact you so you kind of have to put a mechanism mm. in place and you have to you have to keep your promises and that's mm. really important at the time so whatever you agree on the next part of it is the bit that goes on for years and that's the explanation because the explanation that you give a three or a four-year-old is very different mm. to the explanation you give a 10 or a 12-year-old or you give a 16 or a 17-year-old mm. and I think the most important parts of the explanation when you're smaller is that that not all people in the world are perfect and there is some bad people but there's not that many bad people Mm. but that there is some you know Mm. Um, Mm. but as the process goes on you have to teach people how to set boundaries in such a way that they're not afraid of intimacy when they're older and that Mm. they understand that intimacy and relationships are very different Mm. to what happened when they were a child and Mm. that they have to adjust those boundaries and and Mm -hmm. and change their psyche because it does have big long-term effects if you don't get that right. And what in terms of when you um, realise that that a child has been abused um, at different stages of their lives, like you can take, for example, a four-year-old and a 10-year-old, say, for example. So a 10-year-old may have been abused at four and will have kind of developed their own coping strategies or mechanisms by the time they get to 10. So how difficult is that then to navigate um, for parents? It, I, I think it's um, the cases that I find easier to work with, I'll be honest, mm. are the ones where you've picked this up at the time when it's happening. Yeah. The ones that you think retrospectively that something happened 10 years ago um, are a lot harder to cope with mm. because there's a whole, there's far more guilt, it's all submerged, it's all hidden, they've kept secrets for much longer. Um, the people who have been the perpetrators may not still be alive, That I've, I've dealt with that. Mm. And it's, there's just so much more baggage there, it's like anything else. Mm. So it's much nicer to get it right at the time, and I mm. suppose that's why I'm recording this podcast, mm. because I think it's much better to get it right and to realise that there's a journey you need to go on. Um, mm. Like I think when I started working with younger people, my one aim was that particularly um, with girls that they wouldn't end up with eating disorders mm. because that's really common. Your whole internal image of yourself is really damaged and you feel horrendous about yourself and one of the things you control is, is your body weight mm. um, and this obsession that, that you know there must be something wrong with you mm. and, and that's usually the biggest manifest of it. And eating disorders are, are about control predominantly, aren't they? Yeah. You taking so. control of something because that is something you can control. Yes, it's everything else feels out of control, so that one's easy to control. Okay. What advice would you give to parents in terms of being able to spot signs in their children? Nobody wants to spot it. 
and nobody wants to see that or even think it. But what 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 advice would you give to parents to look out for? Like I know that literature must be a part of it. You know, reading to children. Um, in, in, you know, getting children to understand that they are important, their feelings are important, and also their gut instinct is real and it's important too. I, I think the biggest um, advice I have is that if you have a niggle, explore it. Don't mm. just ignore it. Mm. Um, like if I've ever had niggles in the past, even with people that I feel that things have retrospectively happened, or I feel that they're maybe in a club and I, I don't like the dynamic and I'm watching a shift in their confidence and I'm wondering why, I will always say it. Mm. I won't always say what I think's at the back of it, but mm. I'll sort of say, oh, well, that doesn't seem to be a very positive experience at the moment. And, mm. um, you know, what's happening there? Or, you know, there's, di there's different ways to raise the question with people but as parents if you have a niggle don't ignore it deal with it and it you, might turn out to be nothing or there might be yeah. very little that's happened at this stage mm. but it's better to sort of ask the questions and explore it than it is to just pretend it's not happening and you have to be careful about how you approach that questioning in terms of a, a child shutting down because they're afraid to uh, uh, they may have been threatened or they, they may be afraid of upsetting you or yeah, I, I generally try to have the question explored by the people they trust, by their parents, mm. um, rather than anybody else. I think yeah. I think that's the best way to deal with it. Mm. Um, it's it's much better to deal with these things internally than it is externally. Okay. Uh, Dr. Nisha, come to the end of this podcast. Uh, thanks a million. Thank you. See you next time.